Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Glad people have a few bagels and a nice spot to be warm inside. Um, so before we dive in, maybe we could start with our prayer for Torah study. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav B'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Amen. So for anyone with their books, we're starting on page 612. And this is... Thank you. No, I don't know who's this. This is the Torah portion called Vayakhel. And we are quickly nearing the end of the book of Exodus. Um, hard to believe, but, you know, our year is flying by. We are in March, and, uh, you know, one of these reminders that as the seasons go, the Torah kind of goes with them, because obviously our calendar stays with the seasons. You know, we, we get a little forward or a little behind, but always the same seasons. So kind of late winter, we're getting ready for uh, pretty soon Leviticus. But we have some couple interesting things that I think are going on here. So for... Um, explaining more. I'd like to maybe just read a little bit. Um, is there somebody who would like to just read a little bit at the start of the portion here? 35 one. 35 verse 1. All right, I'll read. Moses then convoked the whole Israel Lalit community and said to them, these are the things that the Eternal has commanded you to do. On six days work <coughs> may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the eternal. Whoever does any work on it shall be put uh, to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath day. Okay, so anything about that brief reference to Shabbat that jumps out at you? This is, we're, we're told multiple times in Exodus about the Sabbath that they're really stressing it. Mm -hmm. Yep, so, so obviously this is, this is not the first time we hear about no. the Sabbath. Um, it comes up a number of times. Why do you think it's stressed? I mean, obviously we know Shabbat is a big deal for us. Um, any thoughts about why? Or, or does this tell you anything different than we already knew about Shabbat? There's not a lot of detail here. But the first time I think it says that you would put to death if you don't. So it's pretty serious, right? And, and one of the things that we know is when the Torah talks about death, it doesn't necessarily mean death, right? In other words, for a lot of these especially commandments, we don't read them literally, perhaps. And, and this is one that would give us an obvious understanding of that, similar to, you know, my favorite example for another commandment is, do you know what the penalty is if you have a disobedient child? Death, right? Raise your hand if you think any Jewish parent ever killed their child for being disobedient. At least, at least according to the Torah. Wanted to, certainly. Right? But, but scholars will tell you that they have, they've never found any evidence that anyone ever used that as an actual commandment, right? even going all the way back. So this also, 
Right? When we talk about Shabbat, part of, I think, what it's trying to say is that it's serious. It's a, it's a big deal, right? Because they don't have too many ways of differentiating. And in fact, in, you know, in Jewish tradition, we're told that commandments are just commandments, right? There's no higher ones or lower ones. There's 613 commandments, and they're all just as important. They're the word of God, according to tradition. So how does the Torah tell us which ones we're supposed to pay more attention to or to really focus on? And one of them is by the penalty. You know, and this is this is sort of a hint to us that this is one that we're supposed to take more seriously, maybe spend more time on, or you know, have to do more if you, if you do break it. Um, which, by the way, breaking Shabbat happens a lot. Whether it's intentional or not, um, whether things come up, whether you have other priorities, right? I mean, even for people who really do their best. I mean, I've spent time with with, with Orthodox people, and, and sometimes they break Shabbat. Right again. Um, you were referring last night to the, the finite body and the infinite soul. So maybe this refers to the same type of thing. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're not physically put to death, but your soul dies a little bit when you don't listen to God's commandments. Great. And, and I like that you said your soul dies a little bit. A little bit. Because again, obviously, we wouldn't want to make the statement that, that even your soul is yeah. died or cut off, by the way. Because in terms of penalties, if you break Shabbat, it doesn't mean you're not Jewish anymore. Right? If you, if you eat pork, it doesn't mean you're not Jewish anymore. Right? These are things that we're supposed to do, that we take seriously, but it doesn't mean that we lose our identity or our life because of them. But you could lose a little of your identity if you don't do commandments. Absolutely. And, your soul. Right. and to take that a step further, right? if you continually do that, right. Right? If, if none of this means anything to you, exactly. then you do lose your identity. Right. So right. yeah, I think it's a great way to look at it. But, but again, that's sort of the, the metaphorical way to look at it. And, and again, the only reason I emphasize it is because it, it's very clear, right? If you break Shabbat, you'll be put to death. But there's no evidence that with Shabbat either, anybody was ever put to death because they violated Shabbat. Right? There's, there's no, no record there of that, is, no evidence of well, that. There is a shlakvaka or korek. Somebody is caught chopping wood and they, they kill him. I mean, it, I mean it's, in, it's in there. I've read it. <laughs> so, so let me rephrase that. There, there's no evidence outside of the Torah of, of anyone using this law okay. that way, okay. right? But, but that sort of begs the question again of how we read the Torah. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple episodes. I mean, Korach is different. Korach is the one who gets swallowed up by the earth mm-hmm. because he leads a rebellion against Moses, right? So I, I, you don't need to answer, but we could ask ourselves, do you think that the world actually opened up and swallowed Korach, or do we view that as a message? Right? I mean, it's trying to tell us something about how serious this idea was. I mean, it's one thing here. You, know, you break Shabbat, you get put to death. You lead a rebellion against Israel, and you and 250 of your followers get swallowed up by the earth. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, again, this is sort of degrees of, of importance. Right? It's bad enough to break Shabbat, but you don't rebel. I mean, that, that, that's like one of the ultimate things, I guess, if you think of it that way. Um, so yes, that, that's a fair comment, that things do happen in the Torah. Um, but I, I mean sort of in, in Jewish history, you know, in, in our you know, <laughs> history of using Torah as a document to live our lives, there's no record of people being killed because they violated Shabbat. 
but it's pretty black and white here. What's the other thing that it says? There's only one other thing it says. So again, if, if we're learning about Shabbat here, we learn, one, it's very serious, and what else do we learn? We learn that even the most basic things that you would have to do for your survival, you don't do. So, like, lighting fire was, uh, <coughs> keep the fire going in the community, was a, that's a big thing because, because it took a lot to get a fire. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you just strike a match. You know, right. you had to do a lot of work mm -hmm. to, to make a new fire. Absolutely. So, so it doesn't say anywhere here about a, a Shabbos, if you'll forgive me for the expression, <laughs> a Shabbos goy right. that would light your fire for you, that would do all these other chores so that you wouldn't. It's, and this was common, I know, in, in Europe, my mother told me. Here also. Yeah. Here too. Here also. Oh. Was only because it was a population that you could use, but so so how is that? Well, so it's it's interesting. So first of all, um, so for one second, let me let me respond to what Marty said. So your comment was that this says that even the most basic thing, we sh you know we have to be careful about, right? Like lighting a fire is pretty basic, and especially when you live in a world where like you said, you know, we're not inside with lights and heat. You know, fire was, was protection, it was warmth, it was food. I mean, it, it was one of the most basic things, and it says you can't light a fire. And I think your point, you didn't say it this way, but I think your point was, since you can't kindle a fire on Shabbat, that means you have to really be careful about maintaining the fire, right? This doesn't say you can't have fire on Shabbat. It says you can't light the fire which means, to me, you have to take extra care. Shabbat's one of these times that you have to think about. You can't just, you know, all of a sudden realize on Saturday morning, oh, I forgot to light my fire. Yeah. You have to prepare. You have to think about your needs. You have to think ahead. I mean, it's sort of setting up a system where Shabbat forces you to be prepared for things. Because during this day, you can't do it. And like you said, it's really important if you didn't have your fire on this day. And let's say we live somewhere like this. You know, you, you might not perish. And by the way, if you were going to, you light the fire because, again, that's more important. But I think the point is you'd be uncomfortable. Maybe you'd be hungry for a day, and then you'd, you'd learn your lesson. You know, I, I need to think ahead and plan. So, so I do think this, this does more than just say don't light a fire. This is asking us to live a certain way. The Orthodox, oh, I'm sorry. The Orthodox community does have all these things mm -hmm. that whether it's a hot pot that they keep going low all the time or a automatic they're with electricity they've learned to compensate for the having the nunju uh, come in but what i was thinking just as the rules of kashra separate us from the rest of the community or the surrounding people the sabbath was unique then so it also made the people unique to the surrounding tribes. Yeah, no, this, this was a new concept as far as we know. You know, people basically worked. I mean, the, the idea of stopping like this wasn't happening. Yeah. Um, I, getting back to what Ruth was saying about the goy, did you say? Yeah, yeah. they call it. That was the, 
terminology. Isn't that somebody who is not Jewish? Yes. Usually? Yeah. Right. So, so it's a fascinating concept. And this kind of, this, this actually gets to what you were talking about in terms of coming up with all these things to make it work. Right. So you, you said, for example, uh, and again, it, it's typically orthodox because they're the ones who, to this day, follow some of these things. So they, they won't, won't turn a stove on, but they will have a, you know, like a hot plate mm-hmm. with their, you know, cholent. Anyone know cholent? Yeah. Right. Yeah. The nice rich stew that you'll eat, you know, leave it on the hot pot and it'll stay warm. You just leave it on. Or other, there are other examples of that. Some of which I think are, are great. Isn't that why they started making cholent? Because yeah. it could cook all day. It, it, yeah, right. you can leave it cooking mm-hmm. and it right. lasts and it's, it's easy. It's, it's hearty. Yeah. My father was from Europe and he said on Friday night, the men on the way to the shul would take the cholent and leave it at the Jewish bakery in the oven, and then oh, they would pick it up good. after shul on, Shabbat, on oh, Saturday. How cool. Oh, absolutely. The, that's, that's the way it was in my hometown. Really? No, but the Israelis, um, they have this plate on their stove, and it isn't just cholent. They have all kinds right. of things. Yes. Right. So my family in Israel eats very well, and they're... Uh, Thank you. Right. And again, they're following the letter of the law. Right? The law says you can't kindle the flame. It doesn't, doesn't ever, you know, Shabbat isn't about affliction. Right? It, that's not the point. The point here isn't to say we shouldn't have these things. It, it's, it's different. It's about a mindset shift. And it's about, you know, being careful like that. So we can use fire. We just can't light it. Um, which also leads to things which I, I'm less confident about. So one of my favorite things that's, this is probably the thing I love and hate the most as far as like an orthodox invention. So who knows about the Shabbat elevator? Oh, oh yes. Right. Shabbos elevator. Did it stop? It's, it's, it's in the, um, the building, one of the Federation building in Oak Park. And it's also it at, at Colony yeah. uh, because B'nai Israel is there. <clears throat> they share. Where is the Temple uh, Colony uh, is on a uh, Walnut Lake Road. Yeah, I know yeah. that. Well, but <clears throat> where's an elevator in Colony? Because they have di- they have different floors there, and when B'nai Israel closed their building, and they yeah. merged. Well, they didn't know really right. merge, but they, they but they're there. The building, yeah. They put in a shab a shabbos. Right. Uh, so so technically, again, Doesn't kindling a fire would include you know pushing the button. Right. Mm-hmm. If you push the elevator button. You're, you're li- essentially, it's like turning on a light switch, right? You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're starting that. So you can't do that, which means you can't use the elevator. Um, but especially if you have, say, a hotel or an apartment building or something, or, or the shul, whatever. But they came up with this idea where since you're not supposed to do that, again, like having the fire that's still going, they would just set the elevator. So for the whole 24, 25 hours of Shabbat, it automatically goes to every single floor, opens, closes, opens up, down, the whole day long. So you can just get on, you don't have to hit the button. Which again, on the one hand, I think is ingenious. I mean, talk about a great workaround for that. And on the other hand, part of it just feels like, you know, you're, you're avoiding it. Like, you know, you're not supposed to use the elevator, but here we found a way. So it's brilliant and, you know, it just, yeah. like I said, I just, I wonder. Lot. Uncomfortable. I wonder. But getting back to the, the, the Shabbos Goy. So, so that idea was a big one for a long time. And the interesting part is in the Torah, 
it specifically actually says in another place that the law, right, this law, the Torah, is for us and the stranger alike, the stranger dwelling among us. So you have to think about a tribal world. So we didn't live in cities like this with all of our neighbors, right? We, we had our town or our settlement where we lived. And if we had non-Jews with us, you know, that were working or part of families or whatever they were, right? They were covered by the law, so they couldn't do this. So you couldn't have someone in town really who could break this law because the law applies to everyone. So I don't actually know. I'd have to look it up. I don't know when the idea of a Shabbos Goy started, but I'm guessing it started sometime much later when we started living places where we were living with non-Jews, you know, in mixed areas. And somebody, again, someone sort of ingenious, basically said, oh, well, I'm not allowed to do this. So, you know, hey, friend out on the street, can you come here and turn my lights off for me? And, and essentially, it was an easy way to do that. And it, be, it caught on, of course, and people started using them. And by the way, Shabbos Goy, I don't know how it sounds to your ears. It like it's, you know, it sounds a little uncomfortable, but it wasn't meant that way, right? I mean, Goy really is just a term for the nations, right? Or, or not even stranger. I mean, you know, a, 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 right. Well, a, you know, Goy is, is a nation, really, right? So it's just, it's the nations. It's the other people. So it, it, it didn't start as any sort of a derogatory term. It was literally the other people who could do these things on Shabbat. But now it, it sounds a little funny to us. So, so it would have started sometime later, and it was okay because this never was meant for really other people. You know, following these laws, so so they didn't weren't doing anything wrong by doing that. Although again, it's sort of skirting the issue. If if the point is I need to prepare for Shabbat and think about it and not, you know, change the lights. If I have someone else doing it, it's you know, it's smart and it's kind of getting around it. You know, so I, again, I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, me too. I have uh, a question. Uh, there was a, a group of people at the Federation that came from Israel, young people. And they sat in on one of the classes. And then afterwards, uh, someone asked one of these young men, what, what is your perception, having been raised and educated in Israel, uh, what is your perception of this um, expression, you know, uh, death? So he said, we, what we were taught, he said, was it was metaphorical. Mm-hmm. That it's the beginning of your not, of, of your, Judaism dying when you break this, um, you know, this commandment. Right. And he said, and 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 we were taught that in whenever we came to in Torah to anything like that, it meant that you not just your soul but also your mind was beginning to uh, die as a Jew. So so I'm sure this exists. Um, but it would be interesting to to find a list of the specific commandments that have death as the penalty and sort of see if that list, you know, corroborates with what we would think of as the things like that. You know, what are the things that if we break these, we're really, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of giving it away as opposed to the things that are more about, you know, it's better to do this or this makes people happy or this, you know, is civil law. Um, so I, I wonder, like I said, I'm sure there's obviously lists like that of here's all the, the commandments that go with a death penalty. Um, and maybe they are those things that are really go to our basic identity. That it, it's the slow death of who we are. So. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
So, yeah. This thing about the, throughout the settlement, I agree with you, you know, that we're, even if they're strangers and they're not Jews, if they're living in our community, they're supposed to follow these laws. But is, don't they have this thing where they try to outline the community in the, in the, the Orthodox? Real Orthodox, oh, yeah, the where they, they uh, have the order of what our community is. Yeah. Well, so, so, so that's only within that area you got to do this. Well, so that that's a little different. Mm-hmm. So, and that's also again both you know a brilliant and frustrating thing for my way of thinking. So, somebody said it's it's called an eruv, right? Which which isn't really about defining the community, but what it is is among the laws of Shabbat that, that it, it doesn't really come up in the Torah. This is more what developed. This is Talmud, right? But, but the way the laws were developed is you're allowed to carry things within your home, but not outside. So you can't carry things on Shabbat. Carrying is considered work, which I know sounds strange, but it's considered work. I, I remember actually being in, um, in Jerusalem with uh, some Orthodox friends. We were spending Shabbat with some Orthodox friends of ours, and we, we had um, left their apartment and we were walking to their synagogue when one of them realized that she had, by accident, been carrying something in her pocket, which is against Shabbat. And I remember her actually taking it out of her pocket and throwing it under a bush and saying that she'd go back you know, a day later and retrieve it. But, but the idea that she was carrying something, she, you know, she couldn't continue. So anyway, you're not allowed to carry anything. So the Eruv... Basically, what it does is it says we're going to put up some sort of a, a boundary. It has to be physical. Right? It has to be literally a physical connection that goes around an area. And within that, they're saying this is now our home. And since we're inside this Eruv, we can carry things. So an Eruv will be, for example, and it really happens in cities. You couldn't do it here, really. But you know, in cities, you've got like a building... And then between this building and the next building, you'll have a wire, you know, that connects them. And between like all the buildings or a lamppost or whatever, but you literally will have a, 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 some sort of continuous border that goes all the way around. And that's their definition of now we're in a home so we can carry things. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Like they push uh, puppies and things like that. Yeah. Yep, all that. Which, again, the brilliant side of it, of course, is they're trying to find ways to live according to the law. Right? This is why I love orthodoxy. So orthodoxy sees these laws and says, we're not allowed to, to carry things on Shabbat. Right? Very old law, which was much easier when we used to live in different ways. We live in cities now. We, you know, we walk to shuls several blocks or a mile, things like that. I've got kids or my prayer book or whatever it might be. How can I live according to these laws and, and really follow them, but you know, in a world that didn't exist before? So that's, I think, the brilliance of orthodoxy. Uh, but again, sometimes I think it's done in a way that feels like you know, we're trying to get around it instead of uh, you know, work with it. Like reform, you know, the whole concept of reform Judaism is that not only do, does life change, but so does our understanding of Torah. So, so carrying might be an example of something that, you know, the reform argument would be that made sense. That was that made made our lives holier in some way based on the way that we used to live in that time and place. In this time and place, it doesn't do that anymore, which means we either reinterpret it 
or we give it up, right? Whereas the orthodox argument would be, we can't change what the law says, so we need to find a way around it, right? So uh, two different responses to the same thing, which is a changing world and an unchanging Torah. So a little Shabbat there. So let's move on a little bit. Um, there's just one more kind of section that I think will be interesting for us. So would someone else like to pick it up on uh, verse 4? Okay. Moses said further to the whole community of Israelites, this is what the Eternal has commanded. Take from among you gifts to the Eternal. Everyone whose heart is so moved shall bring them gifts for the Eternal, gold, silver, and copper. Blue, purple, and crimson yarns, fine linen, and goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the aromatic incense, lapis <coughs> lazuli, and other stones for setting, for the ephod and the breastpiece. Little, oh, yeah, little, no, little more. <coughs> and let all among you who are skilled and make all that the eternal has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its clasps and its planks, its bars, its posts, and its sockets, the ark and its poles, the cover and the curtain for the screen, the table and its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of display, the lampstand for lighting, its furnishings and its lamps, and the oil for lighting, the altar of incense and its poles, <coughs> the anointing oil and the aromatic incense, and the entrance screen for the entrance of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering, its copper grating, its poles, and all its furnishings, the laver and its stand, <coughs> the hangings of the enclosure, its posts and its sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs for the tabernacle, the pegs for the enclosure and their cords, the service vestments for officiating in the sanctuary, the sacral vestments of Aaron the priest and the vestments of his sons for priestly service. So you can see great level of detail here. Um, and it, it keeps going with, with a lot of detail. I just want to skip ahead a little bit um, to have you read one last part and then we'll go back and talk about it. But if you could um, go over to page 614. This is now moving into the next chapter down near the bottom of the page. Um, and let's see. Let's see. Um, so yeah, first two. Will you just continue a couple of verses there? Moses then called Bezalel and Ohaliah, and every skilled person whom the Eternal had endowed with skill, everyone who excelled in ability to undertake the task and carry it out. They took over from Moses all the gifts that the Israelites had brought to carry out the tasks connected with the service of the sanctuary. But when these continued to bring free will offerings, well, but when these continued to bring free will offerings to him morning after morning, all the artisans who were engaged in the tasks of the sanctuary came <clears throat> from the task upon which each one was engaged and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than is needed for the tasks entailed in the work that the Eternal has commanded to be done. Moses thereupon had this proclamation made throughout the camp. Let no man or woman make further effort toward gifts for the sanctuary. So the people stopped bringing. Their efforts had been more than enough 
for all the tasks to be done. So that's the part that, you know, everyone at any temple anywhere reads that and says, boy, that's the dream, right? <laughs> like, we've had enough. We don't need anything else. Stop giving us your money. There's nothing else needed for the temple. So at one point in history, it happened. But let's go back then to this little section. So, so again, what, what's happening here? What's the important stuff that you pull out I of this? I think that this is... Um I think that this is great because this this is something tangible. It's like you can't really at this point in time. I guess it wouldn't be good to to like bring all of the laws in, what's in the Talmud and all that, and all the Jewish philosophy and all this, because this is something that they can see and that they can um, that their children can see. It can go from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And you sort of build upon that. Absolutely. This is, this is one of the most concrete, specific sections of the whole Torah, right? We don't usually get this sort of detail. And by the way, I mean, we're not going to read all of it right now, but if, if you even just page through it, this whole Torah portion, the rest of it is filled with every detail you can imagine about each part of this project, you know, how big it is, what kind of material they use, and how much of it, how they overlay it, what kind of sockets they use, and where they connect it, and putting the pieces together. I mean, it's, it's very detailed, right? So it's different than most of what we get. Um, any, any thought about why it would be so detailed? Again, generally the Torah doesn't give us this kind of detail. Why here? Uh, why would it matter? Going back to you, the other thing about uh, the people giving, just looking around the library, you see signs on bookshelves and on walls saying who donated. That you feel that you, the person then feels as a part of the building and mm-hmm. had belonging and also had will continue. Hopefully, the families will continue with that. So right. So one but, one of the big <laughs> one of the big points that I think they're trying to make here. And, and you hit it right on the head, is what they say here um, is, um, right, ev- everyone here, right, everyone in the community is supposed to bring gifts. Now, it says, sort of, I'm looking for the phrase, but to their heart's content, or, or everyone whose heart is so moved. So it's a choice. But it's a choice. But it basically says, if you want to be part of this, bring something. Which is important because then everyone understands this isn't just their place or those you know, three people who contributed everything. It belongs to everyone. We all literally built this tabernacle. And I think you're right about temples. I mean, one of the points is, and again, you look around this room or you look around the temple, and everywhere you see names sort of implies that, that lots of people have a part of this, right? Whether it's you know, a smaller part or a bigger part almost doesn't matter. It belongs to everyone. A temple belongs to its members. I obviously don't own the temple. The board doesn't own the temple. It's we're literally owned by the members. It's a member organization, and that goes to this idea that everyone is a part of it. Mm-hmm. Also, Rabbi, the gratitude is missing. Uh-huh. Like, we're so... I'm so, I should say. I'm so, like not really focused on the donors and the, the names and the amounts. I don't know why, but uh, recently I became very grateful to these people. 
because you know of what they've done. Uh, and there isn't really a separation because I'm middle class and they're very wealthy because some of their donations are in the millions. But what was missing on my part was being grateful, mm -hmm. very grateful for maintaining and adding and, and um, keeping this going, our institutions and our, um, our, our support as Jews. Meaning we have this temple because people made it happen yes. and have continued to make it happen. And we right. get to, I mean, look, we're, we're sitting here at this wonderful Torah study because of all the people who did that. Right. I mean, I think that's what you're saying. And, yeah. and you're right. We, we don't, and it would be hard to think of that all the time, but gratitude is, is a fundamental value. And, and if we never take the time to, to remember, right, whatever it is that we have, whether it's this moment or lots of other ones, that we should be, we should be grateful for being able to do this. Right. So I think you're, it's a good point. Right. This isn't just a Jewish thing. Uh, this country mm -hmm. was built in the libraries, uh, the museums. Uh, they were rubber barons, so-called, but they were doing some wonderful things for the rest of the people. And uh, the Jews learned from them, or maybe they learned from the yeah. Jews. I'm not sure which way it mm -hmm. went. But New York, the Metropolitan Upright, was Jewish money, Jewish brains that formed it. And throughout the country, that was happening. No but question. But I wor worry about the new generation as to whether the children and grandchildren, the next fishers of this world, are as philanthropic. This is said about every generation. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing that about mm -hmm. when I was a young adult, <laughs> and that the older ones are, they have <laughs> to bless you. Bless you. I think they have to learn to be part of the community. Could it also be discipline too? Oops, bless you. Discipline too, because I mean, they're out in the desert and they're making this, am I assuming right? So, I mean, if they were just left sitting there right, without having to do anything, I mean, there'd be lots of fights, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, maybe they'd be making uh, uh, another uh, golden calf somewhere, or a little group out, you know, somewhere might be doing that. So I don't know. I mean, it's like you have to keep focused on something. To, uh, and, and also, so that they, they don't concentrate so much on the fact that they're out in the desert, and some of them are, are starting to get a little mad you know it's like let's let's find a place right now mm -hmm. we've had enough of this wandering. yeah right even though this is early in the wandering right i mean, I mean this is this is soon after the exodus and soon after mount sinai so this is really early i mean they haven't been wandering long but you know if, if we're good at one thing as jews we're good at kvetching it doesn't take us long to to get warmed up yeah, it is amazing. And one of my trips to Israel, my daughter and I were in the desert, literally. <clears throat> and uh, when I read about these details about building the Mishkan and uh, uh, the Lapis Lazuli and all that, and they were always brought out of Egypt. So who's the master planner? So God knew that the Egyptians are going to give them as a present, of course, all that. And uh, so he endowed Betzalel with the skills and what have also. Um, 
But now you go to college and you learn the fine arts and uh, you learn how to do all that. So I don't know, it's, it's just amazing to me. And, and you bring up a good point because obviously all this connects. Right? So here we are reading all this detail about building this tabernacle, this Mishkan, which is, again, if there's one thing that all the detail tells us, it's that it's vitally important. Right? For some reason, this, this Torah wants to know specifically how is this built? What does it look like? How does it happen? There's a lot of detail telling us that there a lot of attention went into this. This is God's dwelling place. And, and importantly, this is where we interact with God, especially in, in the ancient mindset. This was a physical place where God would come into, not over there and not over there, this place. So if we wanted God with us, we had to have a place that God could join us. Where did all this come from? I mean, it is bizarre because, yes, they're out in the desert, right? And, and like you said, whether it's lapis lazuli or the skins or the threads or the gold, silver, copper, I mean, all of this... It doesn't fit the landscape. It certainly doesn't fit the landscape, but we know where did it come from? God. What did you say? Well, I said God no, orchestrated it. It came from Egypt, right? This was this was the wealth of Egypt, and it, most of you were here a few months ago when we had the the conversation about that story, right? If you remember, the, the whole story where basically. The question is, how, how did we escape, right? What happened when we left and, and this sort of strange moment when the Egyptians are all supposed to give us, lend us, you know, all their, their <laughs> precious jewels and, and all this stuff. So, and, and I think your point, Ray, is that there was a plan here. I mean, here we are reading this, but this directly relates to earlier when the wealth of Egypt came along with the slaves. And I don't want to get back to that whole conversation, but if you remember, we talked about, is, that, is it right? Was it deceptive? Are reparations okay? You know, all of this. Whatever you think about that, somehow that was the plan that led to this moment. Without that, we couldn't have done this. Maybe we could have built you know, a, a decrepit little Mishkan that wouldn't have you know, matched God's glory. Maybe we couldn't have even built one, but somehow this is only made possible because of that. And so somehow, if there's a plan, this is the moment it leads to. Right? So, so definitely there's a before and after here that we can't lose sight of. Well, one of the things I wanted to point out was it says that you should bring things to have the Mishkan built, but notice that it's only the finest, mm -hmm. only the best. And you can't just bring something. You can't bring a a shirt with holes in it and think that that's doing something. Right. You gotta bring only your the finest and whatever it is and, and as far as the comment about how all this came from the Egyptians, I think there's also <coughs> we have to remember they were wandering around for a while and they were developing things and they might have found a lapis lazuli someplace or they were maybe trading with people that were passing through the desert at the time. Well, so, so so it didn't all have to come from Egypt, but it, individually, people had something fine. Like usually, even in the poorest home, there's something that an article or something that's that's pretty good or made up of material that's pretty good, and those are the things you you give. And other places in the in the we've read too that when you give charity, it shouldn't be. Oh, this is something I really want to throw away. It 
should be something that's that's meaningful, that's that's good that somebody can use. Not not just oh, I'm going to get rid of my obligation by giving some old thing that I really want to throw in the rubbish, but I'll give it over here. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know? So so there are there are a lot of messages here about what this project is about and how we do it, um, and and I think part of what what you're all uh, you know, settling on is that when we read this here, this seems to be about giving people an opportunity to be part of it. It seems to be about creating something filled with glory, with the best objects, right? The, the, when we read this, that's the message we're getting here. But I want to give us a little bit of context uh, because it, it, it's important to remember that this, we read this as a Torah portion, right? We just started at the beginning of the Torah portion and we started reading and we're reacting to this story, except that in the Torah, there are no Torah portions, right? In, in the Torah itself, Torah portions, you know, the, the dividing lines came later. So the Torah is just ongoing. So you can't read this without what came just before. Does anybody know what happened right before what we're reading? We just had the golden calf, yeah. right? So immediately before this was the incident of the golden calf, which, which just to refresh your memory, was not a small problem. It, it was a huge tear in the relationship between, in particular, God and the people, right? Basically, God had just taken us out of slavery, done the plagues, split the sea. I mean, you know, major miracles, if that wasn't enough, get to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, you know, to receive these commandments. You know, literally the mountain is, you know, on fire. Moses is getting the word from God, these tablets. And meanwhile, the people who have just witnessed all of these things are down there saying, I don't know what's going on. I think maybe Moses and that God are gone. We need a, we need a new one. It didn't take long, right? How long was Moses up on the mountain? 40 days, days, which I know, you know, if if I was in the wilderness and somebody wandered off with no, you know, food or, you know, right. So (laughs) sure. You you might think there's a problem. Yeah, he must be gone 40 days in the wilderness. But but still, they had just witnessed miracles. I mean, literal miracles. And and they gave up that quickly, which was a major break in the relationship. And in fact, led to some terrible consequences. There was a essentially a plague Um, God wiped out thousands of Israelites before Moses sort of stood up and stopped God, you know, said, don't do this, let's repair this. But that's literally what happened just before this. So remembering that, if that's the context, would that change anything for you about this moment? Again, this part where it says, everyone whose heart is moved, bring these gifts well, it clearly did, because they not only brought what was necessary, but what was abundant right. and necessary. And so, again, given what just happened, what does that tell us? Is there any different message than what we just <coughs> talked about? Any reason for this happening or, or any message that we're giving to ourselves? It's getting the people active within the religion. Okay, so one thing that I do think is important is we just had a moment where the people had lost faith, right? I mean, they they had given up, and this is now an opportunity to renew that. 
So this isn't just, and again, I'm not trying to simplify what we were already saying, but it's not just, oh, we'll give everyone an opportunity to be part of this nice project. It was a reaction to everybody being kind of gone, right? So now there's this new opportunity to refresh the idea that, oh, maybe I can be part of this. Anything further than that? Were there any like uh, specific uh, projects that were uh, male and then female? Do you know? Well, so it's interesting because two two things. The first one is that part of the language here that that's really important is it says you know men and women. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it it talks about men and women bringing all these gifts and being part of the project. It doesn't dif- differentiate between them, but it specifically mentions them. So, you know, it's not just the men, which a lot of the stuff in the Torah is just the men, even, you know, the counting, right? When we're going to, we're about to count who all the people are and get that famous 600,000 number, that's just the men, right? It's not really all the people, but here they make a point of all the people. So that, that's one part that's important. The other thing is when it talks about the two particular um, artisans who were in charge, mm-hmm. Betzalel and Oholiab, you know, they were men, mm-hmm. for what it's worth, but it does then say that men and women were working on the project according to their particular, you know, skills. Okay. I think the women were working on the weaving. I think that that's saying that. The cloth. It, it might be that specific. I can't remember. But, so. but yeah, but they all, they're definitely all involved. So it, it's, it does include everyone. Um, Okay. Which which doesn't always happen in here, but this particular project again, it, it's the tabernacle and it's meant to be for everyone. But this parsha also has the contribution everybody's making of half yeah. shekel and the census, so that again unified. Right, although but, but the <coughs> census was only men, right? Yes. Which which again, it was for a purpose. That that census was for the purpose of how do we defend ourselves. In the wilderness, right? It was basically a military census. It wasn't really a a full census, so it had a different purpose, which was you know you know it was all the tribes and it was all the people, but but it was a different purpose. Whereas this, I think, at least as I read it, this tabernacle really is about everybody. I mean, the the, the point of this is this is everyone's place with God, not just the men, not just the adults. This this is everybody. So, so I do think, again, the context with the golden calf is important because it gives everyone a new chance. But also then, this whole thing, remember about um, they, they gave too much, right? Don't bring any more. So why perhaps did that happen? Well, I think it shows the, the sense of the community. The, the community wasn't sure, people in the community wasn't sure how much they need. And they gave from the heart, and they became more of a community. And they were making this physical structure, like Sue said. They were making a a physical structure, like they had had the golden calf was a physical structure. Says, okay, we don't want that. We're going to make this a physical structure because the people need the community needs some physical attachment to something. Yeah, I agree. And, and so uh, he, then the community will build this together so that they'll have a sense of working together and being together. And we do that in business too. You know, we have to get together and we have what we call bonding of the, of the people that are working there. Or sure. The family has bonding so that everybody feels 
they're part of this group. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's important. Yeah, yeah, Ruth. Also, I think he was letting them know this is temporary. This giving to your leaders is not going to be in his in this way. It's not going to be going on forever and ever and ever. This is not a new thing that you're going to be having to do. Uh, this is temporary. This is for a specific project, mm -hmm. and the phase one is is done. You know, we're done with that. Right, phase one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it's always I, the next. It's always the next phase. Yeah, but giving, you know, bringing to the, your leaders and you know the bosses, uh, that's not forever. This is temporary. Yeah, definitely, Sue. Uh, what this portrays is team fulfillment, whether it's for a good purpose or a bad purpose, and people want a leader and they want somebody to tell them what to do. So they get together as a team. This is a good thing. They get together as a team to fulfill this. And um, in this case, uh, this was something that was a community project and it was something beautiful and something wonderful. But that's exactly how cults begin. It's exactly how anything begins because people are looking for something for fulfillment and a purpose. And not all of us can decipher between what is uh, purposeful and accomplishes a beautiful goal and what ultimately turns out to be something not so kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it happens. So there's a great deal of decision making within this. The Golden Camp was the identical premise. They had something to fulfill a lack, mm -hmm. and then they had a purpose. Good. So I'm going to come back to that in one second because that's one of the things I, I want to comment on. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say maybe they said stop, you don't need, because we would need the linens and the threads and maybe some of this stuff for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, because we got to wear clothes. So it was like what individually we needed. Sure. So, yeah, that's true. So, so two, two kind of last points, and then I have to go get ready for services. Um, but given, again, given the context, right, there are two things that I think are fascinating. The first one is that I, I agree with what was said here about what's going on in this process, but the one, you know, step further that I think we're seeing is a reconciliation. So, like I said, we had this golden calf moment, which was a, a tear in the fabric of the relationship between God and the people. So God essentially says to the people, okay, I'll tell you what, we're going to have a chance to renew, renew this here. He gives the, you know, God gives the chance to be part of this project. Right? That's, that's kind of God's way in of saying, okay, I'm going to get over that and start something new. And then for the people who I think are probably feeling some mix of fear and regret and sorrow, whatever it is. I mean, they, they just had this terrible event and realized they had done something terrible. So when they're given the chance to bring to their heart's desire, they really did. I mean, I think it's not surprising that they had too much because this was really, 
you know, think of what happens when we, when we get guilty, right? When we're guilty, we want to just, you know, take this, take, please, you know, overdo something it. to get over it. We overdo it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what's happening is the people were trying to get over this, this breach. So, so it's a reconciliation from both sides that actually kind of works. But the other part of it that is a little under the surface, and this goes to what you were saying, Sue, is that the, the, the comparison, if you think about it, is the golden calf was also a free will offering. Right? What happened then? Basically, the statement kind of went out, we need you know, something, we need a new God. So people gave, here's my earrings, here's my bracelet, you know, take all these things to make the golden calf. It was given for free will for a not good purpose. This corrects that and says, you can also give of your own free will for a good purpose, but it's a reminder, I think especially back to back, it's a reminder that what we choose to do when we are involved in things, when we participate, when we give any of that, is it, it doesn't mean there, there's no such thing as just doing the right thing. We have to choose between things that are better and things that are worse. They chose one way with the calf, they chose a different way with the tabernacle, but they're really both the same thing, taking their jewelry and giving it for this purpose. So for us, I think it's a great reminder um, that we have choices to make, and this tabernacle has a lot more, you know, to offer us than the golden calf, um, but we still struggle with that, right? I mean, we see it all the time in things that people get involved with, where we put our time, energy, resources, those things sometimes go in a bad direction, but this is the choice, right? And again, I think it shows up in the Torah back-to-back as a specific, um, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a... Uh, um, I'm losing the, the term, but uh, a cautionary tale, right? The, the golden calf's a cautionary tale, and here's the correction, you know, with the tabernacle. So, beautiful story. Um, so great. I love the detail, too, because yes. they want to show that right down to the last nail. Absolutely, <laughs> exactly. Was made with something good, not something bad. Yep, exactly. They the, didn't, the, they this, didn't this, cheat on the side. This, right, are right, right. <laughs> Architecture schools are using that. Yeah. So, thank you for all the amazing comments. This was a fantastic conversation. Um, hope to see you down in the chapel in a few minutes. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.